You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Well, 2021 is off to an interesting start, isn't it? We were all reminded this week that social upheaval and unrest didn't go away when the calendar turned from December 31st to January 1st. Our world is still broken. One way we have all seen the brokenness of our world is through the increased political polarization in our own country. This polarization, which is in some form or fashion, has always been present, and it always will be. Uh, this, this existed as a, a burning flame, but through social media and other media outlets, this existing flame has been stoked in a thousand different ways into a blazing and, and seemingly uncontrollable inferno. So many different groups of people seem to legitimately hate each other. In fact, this past week, I read through a new academic study that was published in late October. And here's how the article outlining this new study begins. Disdain for the opposing political party now outweighs affection for one's own party shows a new analysis by a multidisciplinary team of researchers. Its conclusions reveal for the first time on record that negative sentiment for the opposition outstrips positive feelings for one's own partisan affiliation and may be more important than ideological differences in guiding political behavior. So let me say that more directly. People in opposing political parties hate each other. They hate each other more than they love their own party or the ideas they stand for. And that's not true of everyone. But this study is outlining that something has changed dramatically and is only continuing to grow. So I hope this won't come as a shock to you, friends, but I think this is awful. Now, to some degree, this makes sense for those who have never turned to Christ in faith. If your hope isn't found in Christ, then you're always going to be grasping for something or someone to hope in. So I can understand why this awful dynamic would exist, but but here's what I don't understand. I don't understand how any true believer who has spent any meaningful time in the Bible could ever justify getting caught up in this kind of hatred. In the providence of God, I I never would have chosen to preach this text this week, but here we are. Here's what I want you to consider as we look at Matthew chapter 5, verses forty. 3 through 48. As political polarization intensifies and the darkness of sin seems to be hovering over our world like an ominous storm cloud, 
This provides the people of God with an incredible opportunity. This is not the time to shrink back in fear. And it's certainly not the time to get swept up into the cesspool of political partisanship. Brothers and sisters, this is the time for us to listen to our king. To hear the words of Jesus as he invites us again to be salt and light. This is his desire for us. Given what's happening all around us and considering what Jesus will say to us through the scriptures this morning, I'm not sure this verse could be any more meaningful and motivating. Matthew 5, verse 16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Ask yourself, do you want to be bright light in this obviously dark world? Do you want to be used by God to bring hopeless and helpless sinners to a place where they are giving glory to God? Okay. If this is your desire, then listen to Jesus. And take what he says very seriously. Look with me at verse 43. Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here's how I've broken down the passage for us this morning. We begin with something we've seen before. There is a twisting of Scripture, verse 43. And then we find a call to action, verse 44. And finally, we'll encounter a theology of obedience, verses 45 through 48. First, a twisting of Scripture, verse 43. If you've been with us, you're going to hear the same pattern you've heard over the past few weeks. Jesus begins with, you have heard it said, and then follows with, but I say to you, Verse 43 again, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Unlike some of the other examples in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, if you look for an Old Testament quotation of the entirety of verse 43, you won't find it. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Nowhere in the Old Testament will you find a command to hate your enemy. 
You will find the command to love your neighbor over and over, but to be absolutely clear, you will not find the encouragement to hate your enemy. So what do we have here? Well, Jesus is not contradicting what the Old Testament scriptures teach. Rather, he's confronting and correcting a blatant and very dangerous twisting of God's law. You see, apparently there were those who took what scripture taught and then mangled it to fit the sinful desires of their hearts. We all know what that's like. Here was the errant thinking. They actually started out okay. Worshippers of God are commanded to love their neighbor. So far, so good. But then here was the first twist. Your neighbor is only someone who shares your beliefs and nationality. And then here was twist number two. Over time, the command to love your neighbor morphed into a command to only love your neighbor. In other words, the teaching of the scriptures had so been twisted that that here's what some had begun to believe. When God commands me to love my neighbor, he is commanding me to love those who believe like me and look like me. And of course, if, if this is truly God's desire, then he probably wants me to hate everyone who's different than me. D.A. Carson notes that this was, in fact, taught in some circles. He says, in the monastic community, which lived by the Dead Sea, a common dictum was, love the brothers, hate the outsider. So friends, I want you to understand that this terrible twisting of scripture, a profound misunderstanding of who constitutes my neighbor, this is actually what motivated Jesus to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. So in light of what I've just described, I want you to think about this. There was a group who claimed to be living in a way that pleased God. They claimed to walk in the way of Jesus. But they also believed they only needed to show love to those who look like them and believe like them. So Jesus tells them a story. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to them, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to them, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. 
But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. In this story, you have two people who should have helped the hurting man. A priest and a Levite. And then one, culturally speaking, who never would have helped. It was unthinkable for a Samaritan to help a Jew. So what's the point of the story? Only one person really understood the teaching in the way of Jesus, and it's not who you think. Your neighbor is anyone in need. It doesn't matter what they look like, what they believe, or whether they would be considered your enemy. Now with this in mind, look again at Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Do you realize, friends, that Jesus is just using our categories here? He's not really advocating that we all have this classification of people we call enemies. He's acknowledging that we look at different people in different ways. And in a very real sense, he is confronting this and making the point that from his perspective and according to his way, there is, there is really only one group of people. Whether you naturally like them or you don't, you need to love them. And this is especially true when they're in need this brings us to the second division in the text. There's a twisting of scripture and then there's a call to action, right? Here's the, but I say to you. We see that in verse 44, call to action, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. As Jesus likes to do with one statement, he flips everything on its head. The Pharisees and other religious people believed they were being obedient to God by hating their enemies. They had actually convinced themselves of this. Jesus responds with an unmistakable call to action, and it's not what his audience was expecting. Notice, I just want you to hear the contrast again between verse 43 and verse 44. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I know this would be very difficult to imagine, but, but just for a moment, imagine, imagine that you were guilty of the same problem that Jesus is exposing here. Again, I, I know this is a stretch, but imagine that you had adopted a sinful way of thinking about those you disagree with. And imagine you had convinced yourself that you were justified in hating someone because of who they were and what they believed. 
Now, imagine Jesus is sitting down with you and explaining something to you. He's explaining that in your mind, you have these two distinct categories of people. Neighbors you love and enemies you hate. Jesus then explains to you that you have it all wrong. And he offers you two new categories. People that are easy to love and people that are hard to love. That's it. You see, if you're going to identify with Jesus, you don't get to chalk off a whole group of people you don't like, even if they don't like you. So in this fictional conversation, you might respond to Jesus, but you don't understand. You don't know the things they've said about me. You don't know the things they've done to me. Jesus, they've persecuted me. Jesus, there is only one appropriate response. Based on what they have said and what they've done, they deserve my hate. In response, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus replaces our one sinful response with two clear commands, love and pray. Most of us know what it means to pray. We have some idea what it means to love, but just to make sure we're, we're fully understanding what Jesus is saying, here's what he means when he uses the word love. This refers to generous, warm, costly self-sacrifice for another's good. We could call it gospel love. Not surprisingly, this perfectly describes the actions of the Good Samaritan, doesn't it? The one who truly loved his enemy. Think about the text again and just listen. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And then he kept walking. Now, that's not what it says. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. And he said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Love your Enemies means act toward them in a manner that is generous and warm, marked by costly self-sacrifice for their good. You know those people that really do say awful things about you? That really do despise you? That do, in fact, revile you and lie about you? Those who really do persecute you? All those who have set themselves against you and have chosen to become your enemies? Jesus commands his followers, citizens of his kingdom, love and pray 
for those people. Love and pray for those people. Now, at this point, you might be thinking that this all sounds a little unrealistic. Love and pray for your enemies. You can understand if Jesus encouraged his followers to, he left out love and he just said, try to pray for your enemies. That sounds more realistic. You and I could do our best and then just sort of leave it at that. But of course, this is not what Jesus says. His call to action is a call to love and pray for our enemies. Friends, I think this is very instructive that these two activities are placed together. Why? Because they feed off each other. Let me offer you a couple of ways uh, this might happen. So three quick observations about the connection between love and prayer in verse 44. Number one, if I have a desire to replace hate with love, can I do this as a simple act of my own will? <laughs> no, not a chance. You've tried it before. It doesn't work. I need God to radically change my heart. And what is one of the primary means God will use to change my heart? It's the practice of prayer. As I cry out to God in desperation, I ask him to do something in me and to me that I cannot do for myself. My heart needs to change. I can't change my heart. I have to plead with God to do what only he can do. Help me. Change me so that I might see this one I despise with the eyes of Jesus. Drive out hate and replace it with gospel love. That's the first observation. Number two, simply put, it's really hard to hate someone you're praying for regularly. It's really hard. It's really hard to hate someone you're praying for regularly. It will likely be through the discipline of praying for your enemies that your heart will be softened and you will begin to view them differently. Number three, one of the most loving things you can do for someone, especially someone whose life is marked by persecuting others, you can pray for that person. You can pray for that person. Praying for someone is a profoundly loving thing to do. So friends, I want to challenge you to do this. In fact, I dare you to do this. Think of the people you hate the most. Or if you want to feel more spiritual, those you're tempted to hate the most. And commit to pray for them every day for the next 10 days. Think about the people that treat you like garbage. And commit to pray for them every day for the next 10 days. Obey Jesus and see what happens. Now this coupling of love and prayer gives us some idea of how we can obey this very difficult teaching by Jesus. But let's move on to the final section of this text. First we saw a twisting of scripture, then Jesus issued a call to action. Finally, look with me 
at a, a theology of, of obedience, a theology of obedience. <clears throat> we can arrive at this part of our text and wonder, how can we obey this? And why is this so important? As is always the case, our obedience is rooted not in our own ability, but it is rooted in the nature and character of God. Our obedience is motivated and made possible by God and his glorious work in and through us. The first part of verse 45 is key to our understanding, but we've got to be careful that we make sure we get what Jesus is saying here. Look at verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Is Jesus saying that obeying his command to love your enemies and pray for them is the way to become a son of the Father? In other words, you and I must earn our way into the kingdom by our obedience. Here's a checklist, do these things, you're in. No. And remember, Jesus' primary audience is those who already believe. They are already kingdom citizens. So as we've said so many times before, this is not the way into the kingdom. This is the way of the kingdom. Accordingly then, D.A. Carson explains verse 45. Listen carefully. The point of the passage is not, it is not to state the means of becoming sons, but the necessity of pursuing a certain kind of sonship patterned after the father's character. To be persecuted because of righteousness is to align oneself with the prophets. We saw that in verse 12 of chapter 5. But to bless and pray for those who persecute us is to align ourselves with the character of God. Brothers and sisters, we are motivated and mobilized to obey the commands of Jesus, not in an effort to become good enough for God, but we are motivated and mobilized by the goodness of God. The goodness of God that has already been lavished upon us. This now shapes and animates a new way of life. So the first element of our theology of obedience is the goodness of God. The second is the sovereignty of God. Look at the second part of verse 45. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Have you ever noticed that the sun doesn't only shine on Christians? Has it ever occurred to you that rain doesn't just fall on the fields of Christian farmers? Friends, God gives good gifts to evil people. People that despise and reject God still get to enjoy the gift of sunshine and the benefit of rain. You see, God does not withhold his kindness entirely from those who mock and curse him. In the same way, the people of God 
members of the kingdom of heaven here on earth, brothers and sisters, we should not limit our kindness to those who believe and look like us. In fact, to use the example in verse 45, perhaps the point is that our kindness, listen, our kindness should be offered to all the same people that enjoy sunshine and rain. Or we could put it this way. With your love, don't be stingier than God. The goodness of God and sovereignty of God motivate and shape our obedience, but so does the love of God. Look at the illustration Jesus offers in verses 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. If you and I only love those who already love us, and if we greet only those who already greet us, then none of us are any better than a tax collector and a Gentile. In other words, if your kindness in word and deed is only ever offered to those who know you and like you, then there's no distinction between your way of life and the way of life of the most despised person on the face of the earth during the time of Jesus. A tax collector who is known for corruption and exploitation. Jesus is like, if this is the way you operate, this is the company you're with. Verse 47 makes the same point, but perhaps makes it a little stronger. The NIV translates verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. One commentator gets to the heart of Jesus's point here when he writes, disciples of Jesus, I want you to hear this, disciples of Jesus, will stand out in the world because of the divine quality of their love. Indeed, elsewhere, Jesus elevates love as the distinguishing mark of those who are truly his. Brothers and sisters, right now, if we interviewed random people on the street and we asked them, what are Christians known for? What are Christians known for? What do you think they would say? Would they say, oh, they're known for their love? Look with me now at verse 48. You'll notice that there, there's a therefore near the beginning of the verse. In light of the goodness and sovereignty and love of God, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. <clears throat> now understand this or you could misinterpret this terribly the word translated as perfect means this having attained the end or the aim if anything has fully attained that for which it is designed it is perfect so listen Jesus is calling his followers to mirror God in having no limit to their love 
In this context, let God's unrelenting, unmerited, undeserved, unlimited love be your model and motivation for loving both your friends and your enemies. Mirror God. Now, when we take all that Jesus is teaching in this text and we try to encapsulate it and illustrate it, the first place we must go is to the cross. On the cross, Jesus died for his enemies. Supreme act of love entirely for enemies. Jesus didn't die for those who had cleaned themselves up and were mostly deserving of God's love but just needed a little nudge the rest of the way. Now, what does Romans 5, 6 through 8 tell us? For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So if you're here this morning and you say, Christ died for me. I've received his gift of salvation by faith. You're also saying, I'm in that category. I was, I was part of the ungodly. Then to make sure we fully understand what is happening in the gospel, verse seven, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though Perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is a song we sing that captures this reality so well. By your perfect sacrifice, I've been brought near. Your enemy, you've made your friend. Pouring out the riches of your glorious grace, your mercy and your kindness know no end. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Now listen, once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Brothers and sisters, this, this is what the world needs from us. It doesn't need more political posturing. It doesn't need greater numbers of Christians spending countless hours on social media defending their favorite politicians and attacking those they hate. The world needs Jesus, which means the world needs people like you and me to become so overwhelmed with the love we have received in Christ that this love then motivates and mobilizes us to serve all those in need whether they look and act like us or not. The world needs Christians 
who will refuse to participate in the present culture of vitriol and hatred and will instead push back against the darkness by sacrificially loving and fervently praying for our enemies. And when we are asked, right, if you do that, you're going to stick out. And when we are asked, why? Why are you doing this? These people hate you. You're supposed to hate them. Why are you showing them love? Why are you praying for them? Here's what we get to say. There's only one reason. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let's pray.